Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am your host, Boomer. Uh, not your host, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am Boomer, sorry. And I own 51% of this company. <laughs> oh, boy. I didn't even have turkey, and I still got Thanksgiving brain. I had a roast instead. All right. I mean, yeah, to be fair, we are recording this in the, like, days after Thanksgiving, the dying hours of November. Yeah, we're a little, a little out of it, I think. Yeah, I'm not your host. Brandon is your host. I am your guest. Uh, and my name is Boomer, and we are here to talk about movies. Yeah. Um, it is like kind of the last month of the year coming up, and um, this is generally catch-up time for like best of the year stuff, and also just lazy, absent-minded television watching time, because it's cold outside, and what else are you going to do with your time? It's cold inside my house, too, to be honest. So I don't know about you, but I've been watching a lot of bullshit have you been watching movies and TV and such? Oh my goodness, so much, needlessly. <laughs> yes, I've mostly been doing television, but it's been a very lazy week and I had an extra day off. So, you know, uh, movies as well. What you been watching? Well, as far as TV goes, I watched this television show, Daybreak, um, that is on Netflix, which has a premise that could very easily become super annoying and at first seems like it is going to be super annoying but actually turns out to be pretty surreal and fun it's um i don't know if you ever saw the new zealand teen television show the tribe oh yeah i have seen episodes of that because cc had like vague childhood memories of it and we revisited a little bit of it okay well then great uh it's the tribe but um, <laughs> for comedy, and for those of you listening who haven't seen it, The Tribe is basically just like New Zealand teenagers in the post-apocalypse after all of the adults have died. And Daybreak is that, but in you know somewhere near LA, set in the modern day, where some sort of biological weapon has um, killed almost all of the adults other than those which have turned into what they call ghoulies. It seems like it's Night of the Comet rule where it's like mm. partial protection mutates you into a monster. And then the various teens break off into cliques and their own individual societies like the Chirmazans and the Jocks and stars almost no one you would have ever heard of or seen before other than Matthew Broderick as the principal. One of the teenagers was also a minor recurring character on Riverdale and the lead played young young Sam Winchester in early seasons of America's longest-running scripted live-action television show, Supernatural. I recommend that. I also have been watching Raised by Wolves, which everyone's been talking about, which is great. It's fascinating. It's very interesting. And yet, it makes me very, very sleepy. Is that a Ridley Scott production? Yes. I, he directed the first two episodes, and I think he's an executive producer. And it is very much in the Ridley Scott wheelhouse, you know, um, human colonization, religious discourse, androids. And it's it's very well made. It's very It's really nice to look at, but in a very, like, soporific way, where it's like, God, every single time that shot they use the shot of these clouds coming over the mountains i'm just like mm, yeah i should take a nap <laughs> i watched a recent film called freaks starring grace park and emil hirsch uh i guess it came out in 2018 and it is about i mean exhaustingly it is about super powered people but it's at least it's something new and different it's 
you know, this little girl has been living in complete isolation with her father inside of an abandoned house. And, you know, there's been some emergence of people with powers, but the government has basically put them in concentration camps and she's being protected by her father, uh, who is Emil Hirsch from the outside world against Grace Park, also known as a uh, boomer from Battlestar Galactica, who mm. is basically the face of the government agency tracking them down. And her grandfather is Bruce Dern. So, you know, good to see oh, cool. uh, him getting work. I'm not sure it's, I would necessarily recommend it, especially because we're living in an age of oversaturation of people with powers, even when it comes to even reevaluations of that are starting to seem kind of tiresome. But if you're bored, it, it does exist. Yeah, I still haven't caught up with Fast Color um, from around that same time, not because it didn't look great and hasn't been getting great reviews. It was just like, I don't know that I have anything else left in that topic that could interest me <laughs> to go out of my way yeah, to watch no, it. No, I completely understand. I completely agree. I did a post-Halloween Child's Play franchise marathon. I watched as much of it as was available to me. I watched Child's Play Classic. Not terribly long ago, so I didn't include that in this, but I did watch uh, Child's Play 2, which is pretty- My favorite. It's great, isn't it? It's so good that any of the sequences in the factory with that like kind of candy-coated color palette and like all the yes. different Chuckies being like born out of the machine, so good. And Beth Grant's in it, which is always a plus. Yeah, Beth Grant as the teacher. I adore her. I, she is great. I Now I always think of her as- um, the CPR teacher or the sex instructor with the CPR doll from boyfriend school. Yeah. From don't tell her it's me slash boyfriend Academy or whatever it was, <laughs> um, which was my first movie of the month to be involved with. So it's forever etched in my mind, <laughs> but the actress playing the older foster sister, Kyle was amazing. And I'll be honest it's been so long since I saw these that I was like, is that, is that Martha Plimpton? It's not Martha Plimpton, but she does <laughs> look like Martha Plimpton. Christine McCarthy is her name. And I thought she was great. Child's Play 3, I also thought was better than its reputation. I mean, it's not great. Huh. That's the military school one? Yeah. I remember being kind of bored by it, but it's been like at least a decade since the last revisited it, so... I don't know if I trust that. It's definitely a step down in quality, but I sort of was coming of age as a horror kid whenever the latter sequels, like Bride and especially Seed, were coming out. Like I went and saw Seed in theaters when I was in high school. And although those movies have a, we'll call it charm of their own, they're not great. Whereas I felt like, uh, Child's Play 3 at least was still in the realm of taking itself seriously enough while being goofy. Yeah. And it also had uh, Andrew Robinson in a really great role as um, the sort of sociopathic military school barber. And I thought he did really well. I, of course, know him mostly for his portrayal of Garrick on Deep Space Nine, but he <laughs> is also in... Um, Hellraiser. He's the he's the lead, the human male lead in Hellraiser. And then I could not find Bride of Chucky streaming anywhere. So I did go to Seed of Chucky because Child's Play 1 through 3 are on 
HBO Max, but Bride of Chucky, I can't seem to find anywhere. I even checked all the, you know, the minor league streaming services to be crackle. You know, <laughs> I went, I really, I really, you know, um, hit the bottom of the barrel. So I skipped to Seed of Chucky, which is currently on Netflix, and it is just as messy as I remember, but again, not entirely without certain charms. I mean, John Waters is in it, so you know it can't be the worst thing ever. I don't remember those particularly well, that era of those, but I will say the fans of those that are like very into um who's the main guy, like Mancini, the director, I think. Yeah, Don Mancini. They were very mad at the new remake that came out last year, and I loved that movie. <laughs> so um I don't know what they uh, are missing that's not in the, the remake, but I loved the new one. I haven't seen it. I wanted to see it, but I really, I feel like I need to see the latter day sequels that I still have not seen. I feel like I need to see those before I see the remake, and they are pretty difficult to find. Yeah. And at least as far as like something that needs to have my full attention. I think one of them is on Netflix, but I forget which one. And then I also saw, God, you know, sometimes you ask me what movies have you watched and I have nothing to tell you. And for once I have a whole bunch. I'm sorry, but uh, this is great. It's a bounty. I saw run the new, God, I, I, I don't really want to spoil it by just saying that the new Munchausen by proxy, uh, Sarah Paulson uh, trapped in a house thriller. Yeah, Brittany described it as uh, relating to that Gypsy Road Blanchard case from a couple years ago. It is that, pretty clearly and openly, which I'm getting copy to you on this, and I don't want to repeat myself or get too far ahead of myself, but that story has been told like multiple times at this point in mm-hmm. fiction, in documentary. So this is like a fictionalized version of that again. And maybe it's not fair to say, Oh, Sarah Paulson's giving us an amazing performance, and she always does. I, I do think the actress playing the daughter, um, she does a really great job, but it is not quite enough to make this movie feel very novel to me. Yeah. But that did lead me to something I wanted to ask you about before I ask you what you've been watching, which is as a trapped in a house movie, it is very clearly cribbing certain elements from misery Mm. most notably there is a scene where the daughter character is trying to get information and she calls 411 and the inbound voice recording the ivr is like say a city and state such as Derry, maine which (laughs) you know misery obviously is one of the few that's not set in new england it's set in colorado because he's coming back from you know paul's coming back from that ski cabin but they're evoking that stephen king milieu yes and in fact there is a scene in a pharmacy where the pharmacist character is only named as kathy in the dialogue but according to imdb the character's name is kathy bates ah okay so it's very clearly has a lot of misery that it's cribbing from including like an eventual scene in the basement the daughter character sort of figuring out her origin based on newspaper clippings that she finds right about her mother much like paul discovering annie's history as an angel of death nurse serial killer in misery which made me realize that I never asked you about your thoughts about Misery. You told me that you were going to watch it for the first time, and I never asked you what you thought. I mean, I loved it. I talked about it on the show a couple episodes back. 
just as being like one of the more standout things I saw all October, Kathy Bates, as far as like psycho bitty Kanan goes, like what an amazing performance. And what, what threw me off too is just like how fucking adorable she is when she's in a good mood. Yeah. Like she's like so cute in that movie. And then, you know, when she's in a, a bad mood, um, terrifying, which is like perfect. Yeah. I also liked the clash and the tone, just like Rob Reiner's like kind of wholesome mainstream filmmaking sensibilities. <laughs> yeah. And then you have like the hobbling scene that like cuts through that in like this really horrific way. Yeah, I really liked that movie a lot. The most recent time that I saw it, which that was a movie that I watched in my childhood with my mother who loved horror movies. And we kind of had to watch them secretly, like when my dad was like on a hunting trip or whatever. And Misery is a movie that's largely bloodless. It's all about tension and character. It's not like, you know, faces of it's the not dead. Like splatter fest or <laughs> yeah, anything. It's, it's pretty it's pretty tame as far as like things that you would try and keep a child from seeing other than the hobbling scene and perhaps the killing of the, the policeman. But the most recent time I saw it was fairly shortly before quarantine, I went over to my old roommate's new place and we did a Stephen King double feature where we watched Christine and then Misery. And have you ever seen Christine? No, I I need to. Uh, The thing about Christine, the reason it worked really well in a double feature with Misery is Christine is just about the dullest story that has ever been adapted from Stephen King's work. He's certainly written duller things, but most of the time they don't get made into big budget films directed by John Carpenter. Like the thing about Christine is it's so dull. It's so very boring to watch from a narrative perspective, but John Carpenter is directing it. And it is John Carpenter really bringing his a game to a really dull Stephen King narrative. So it looks great. And it kind of, you have this like bit of dissonance while you're watching it, where you're like, God, this movie is gorgeous. And like, there's definitely things that he is, you know, doing that are similar to Halloween, but he's gotten a little bit, he's progressed a little bit as a director where, you know, the like stalking through what looks, what could just as easily be Haddonfield in Halloween, but it's, you know, wherever in New England that Christine is set, but it's just so dull. Whereas Misery, I think, is a movie that's fascinating and you really get caught up in it and you really feel trapped in that house. And I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't want to disparage Reiner as a director at all, but it is shot much more dully. The setting looks like a Twin Peaks episode, but the atmosphere is like a Northern Exposure episode. Like It's like very like atmosphereless, no tension. Yeah, the camera is not very dynamic. It's shot like a play, you know, and, and really it is a play. It's a, it's a character drama between Annie Wilkes and Paul Sheldon. And it's mostly confined to one location like a play would be. And both of them are giving really great performances. This was like Kathy Bates' big break, if I'm remembering my, like, Kathy Bates chronology correctly. And, you know, Khan is also delivering a really great performance. And it's so good, but it's so... The camera is so static, and the shots are so static. Like, in the whole movie, the only thing that I remember having any kind of dynamic 
cinematography is there is the sequence where Paul is sitting at like the window seat and writing and like time elapses via our view of what Annie's farm looks like out the window as it moves from like winter to spring. And that's to show how long he's been there and how long he's been working on that novel. But other than that, it's shot very much like a play or like a TV movie. And I think that those two films like in conversation with each other function really well because you've got Carpenter making like a beautiful but dull film and Reiner making like a very interesting but not particularly like tactile film. But yeah, uh, what have you been watching? Okay, so it's like the best of the year catch-up season for me and I am terrible at watching movies around this time of year. Like every time I pop something on, especially if I'm going to rent it VOD, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, is this best of the year worthy? Like, <laughs> was this worth paying $5 to see it before January when it'll be, like, free in a couple months on, like, Hulu or something? Which is just a really dumb, unforgiving way to enter a film. And I think we'll get a little more into that when we're talking about our main topic today. So, I mean, kind of as a result, like, a lot of my favorite new movies I've been seeing is older stuff that doesn't have all that pressure on it. So stuff like Misery... More recently, though, I watched, I rewatched Strictly Ballroom, Baz Luhrmann's movie from the 90s. Have you seen that one before? No, I haven't. I've only heard the legends. It is so good. And I always am surprised by how absolutely fantastic it is because nothing else he touches quite gets there. When you're watching stuff like um, Moulin Rouge or um, Romeo and Juliet, it's like almost great, but there's just something like disappointing and frustrating about it. And in Strictly Ballroom, he's operating on this, like, John Waters level, like, budget and community theater vibe. He doesn't have all the, like, glitz and, like, budget that he has now. And yet the movie is, like, a five-star classic. It's, like, the only five-star movie in his catalog, in my opinion. So if you have, like, a constant frustration with Baz Luhrmann where you just wish he was a little better, I I highly recommend Strictly Ballroom. It's always satisfying. I don't think that I've seen... I've only seen Romeo plus Juliet and... I have also seen Moulin Rouge like a thousand times against my will. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that one. (laughs) I had a roommate at boarding school who had, and this was in the days before we had streaming in the dorms, he only owned two DVDs, which were Cruel Intentions and Moulin Rouge. And those two would get watched pretty much every night back to back. So uh, I've never actually consciously watched Moulin Rouge, but it lives inside of me somewhere in the dark recesses of my mind palace, you know? Well, hopefully Strictly Ballroom would be a salve for that slow burn you suffered. I'm going to have to check it out. Is there anyone in it that I would... No, it's just like an Australian, like, low-budget, like I said, almost a community theater kind of vibe. And it's about a ballroom competition that this, like, small town cares way too much about. And it just has all the gaudy colors and the -the over-the-top pageantry and the just visual spectacle that all of his like better funded movies also have. It's just like, I guess the constrictions of the budget and just the sort of like mania of the humor. It very much is like a nineties John Waters film um, in that way. Kind of like that Muriel's wedding era of like Australian. Okay. Filmmaking. You've won me over. I'm convinced. Now. It's really good. I also have one that I, I think would also be on your wavelength called Gothic from 1986. I just watched this a couple nights ago. It is a Ken Russell film. It is a dramatic depiction of 
Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and Mary Shelley taking laudanum in a castle and telling ghost stories, which is the infamous night when Mary Shelley conceived of Frankenstein. Uh, so it's like a sort of literary legend that gets passed around. In Ken Russell's version, though, it is <laughs> what you would expect from that director. Like, it is this sweaty, horny nightmare where it's less about the ghost stories they come up with and swap. It's more about the hallucinations from the laudanum. And there's like this demon that's chasing them around the castle and it becomes this kind of like haunted house movie, but on the budget of like a Kate Bush music video, (laughs) like lots of women in nightgowns running from room to room, scared of, uh, of ghosts and these like creepy automatons that Lord Byron has around his mansion. It's really fun. I think in that Ken Russell way. It's like very sweaty, very like over the top, maybe a little amoral. Okay. I did really enjoy Salome's last dance. I wasn't sure that I was going to, but I did. So I guess I'll have to check that one out. I'm looking very briefly at the explanation of it uh, on Google results. And I see that um, it stars Julian Sands as uh, Percy. Which Julian Sands is a an actor that I know primarily because of his role as the Phantom in Argento's Phantom of the Opera, which, as I've established before, is the worst movie I've ever seen. He's also terrible in Boxing Helena. Awful in that movie. Oh, so I don't know what happened to him, but in Gothic, he's very good. Okay. I feel like every time I see him, I'm a little bit like, oh, right. I've seen a lot of bad movies, and most of them at least have like something that's redeemable in them. But Argento's Phantom of the Opera is a war crime. His his boxing Helena performance is at least fun bad. It's definitely inhuman and not right. I don't know what happened to him. But uh, if, that's a good redeeming watch as well for him in Gothic. Because at least when he's off and not right, it's because he's sweaty and high on laudanum. <laughs> so there's like at least a reason for it. Uh, oh, man. Although, speaking of Argento, um, RIP to Daria Nicolodi. Yeah. That was a pretty devastating thing to learn on Thanksgiving Day, but you know she had a she had a pretty long career at least, you know, and she gave a lot of herself to the world. Argento, in later years, has argued that her contribution to the actual writing of Suspiria has been overstated, but fuck him. Yeah, what is the point of that? Yeah, uh, fuck him. She's she contributed. She's great. You know, R.I.P. to a real one. I, I'm I'm drinking lemon ginger tea, so I'm not going to pour one out. But those of you listening who have the opportunity to pour one out for Daria, please do. My wives, you all came to me broken, searching hurt by a cruel world that is more filled with pain every day. I took every one of you in. I protected you. I sacrificed my life for you. I gave you shelter. I gave you daughters and sisterhood and life. So I mentioned that this is like best of the year catch up time, which the last couple of things I've made you watch for this 
show have been like blind watches for me too because I just have movies on my list to see that I've been putting off because they looked rough. <laughs> so I'm starting to dump those on you, but I'm hoping I at least get movies that are on topics you like to watch on screen. Yeah, you really hit the mark with this one. That's good. I mean, this was full disclosure. This was a recommendation from Brittany like early in the year. She had rented this and now it's free on Hulu. If you subscribe to Hulu, uh, it's called The Other Lamb. It's a 2020 film starring Raffi Cassidy, who I had seen Vox Lux a couple years ago and really liked her in that. She is the teenage member of a cult in the woods. The movie appears to be set in America, but it was obviously filmed in Europe because nowhere in America looks like this. They're in this like old, old forest, like with these rolling hills and these like gnarled trees. And it's just a cult of women. They're color coded by their cult leader, who is played by Michael Huseman, I think is his name. He's on like every HBO show as a dick. He's the second Dario Naharis as I guess what he's most famous for. For looking like Jesus? <laughs> uh, oh, okay. That was the, the character from Game of Thrones. I'm yes. sorry. I thought I assumed for some reason that was the guy who played Jesus in um, the Mel Gibson movie because <laughs> this guy just looks like Jesus. Oh, I think that um, was James Caviezel. But okay, that sounds right. You are correct that this person has a very American white Jesus uh, appearance. Yes. yes. And he's playing the cult leader. He has color-coded his cult members as wives and daughters. So the wives wear red, the daughters wear blue and the wives raise the daughters until they age out. And then the daughters become the wives. And we have no idea how long they've been living in the woods this way. We just know that Raffi Cassidy's character, she's like the main character of the film. It's kind of like through her point of view. She starts off as one of his most like zealous members where she like really believes his like controlling misogynistic like worship me spiel because she's grown up in that environment that like is the whole world that she knows but as she comes into adulthood she starts to question if her shepherd is as good of a person as he says he is and then also at the same time is questioning whether or not her attraction to him is a good thing like she is like a bored teenager who is horny for the only man in her company but also is scared of the like impending reality that they will be having sex soon. Like she's both compelled and terrified of it. And it must be noted as well that he is her father. Yeah. The, the daughter's thing is literal. Like the wives bear children for him and then they, those children grow up to be his next set of wives. Yeah. It seems to be that there is consistent external recruitment of wives and eventually all of the daughters are promoted into wifehood as well. We meet one of the young wives uh, over the course of the narrative, and it's unclear if she is from the outside or is a promoted daughter, but it does highlight the conflict between the two in the sense that there's now a wife who has more power in this cult hierarchy as much as one who is also a victim of a cult can, but who is the same age as the daughters. And therefore there's like a, a conflict of power dynamics. And that is one of the more insidious aspects of the cult. I think, um, you know, on top of all the incest and like control and like ego worship is that they really enjoy the sisterhood of like living around all these women in the woods. Like the women themselves enjoy being around each other except that he manipulates them into competing with each other. And it brings all this like kind of nasty interpersonal conflicts up 
because there's only one of him to go around and so many women competing for his attention, which, you know, starts to piss her off as she becomes more and more aware of how he's manipulating them as a group. Yeah. So this movie, I think to me is most interesting in the context of like how much expectation you put on it. If you're watching it as like a best of the year catch up, or if you're comparing it to even like recent years, there's like a lot of elevated horror cult movies. This sort of like looks similar to like kind of like the witch or midsummer. Uh, There's another one called Hagazusa, I think is in the same ballpark. That might be a little too much pressure for the movie to withstand. Like that's a high mark for it to have to live up to. But if you just look at it on its own values, it's a very well acted and extremely well shot. It's like very creepy and very gorgeous, almost like experimental, like camera work. A lot of times it's like really extreme Dutch angles and like really weird pull focus stuff when she's on the mountain with the cult's sheep where like the mountains start like moving in weird ways just because of what the camera's doing. So yeah, I, w- I found it very impressive when considered in isolation and then like very dulled when comparing it to other works, which is unfair to the movie. Yeah. It's, it's not its fault that it is in conversation with a larger genre than itself that has recently emerged. Another thing to note, you mentioned that it is clearly supposed to be set in the U S which really kind of comes as a surprise. I was expecting that it must be somewhere in the old world or even perhaps like New Zealand based on just like the mountainous verdancy of it all until like, you know, there's a scene at the end where uh, police officers show up. There's a, there's a scene earlier in the film where a police officer shows up and is like, uh, yeah, you got to pack your cult up and, and leave town, buddy. That's when I got shocked when I saw that American police car in that scene. I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> See, I didn't realize that it was necessarily an American police car at that time. But when that officer and another officer show up later and they have a uh, discovery, the discovery that they make, and they clearly have like, you know, stars and stripes, like flags on their jacket. I was like, oh, oh, okay. I guess, I guess this could be some sort of like fantasy Appalachia or something. But you mentioned um, the lead, uh, Rafi Cassidy, which you said Vox Lux, which I have not seen. And I, for the life of me, could not figure out what I knew her from, but she is the daughter from Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh yeah, that's right. She's good in that too. And also I, I, I think it's worth mentioning because we just did a Mike Flanagan episode the last time you and I spoke about Oculus. Michael, or perhaps Michelle Huisman, who is the male lead in this film, was also the eldest son as an adult in The Haunting of Hill House. Right. But unless you're really looking out for that, because they really do play up the white, <laughs> the Anglican Jesus look in this film, you might not necessarily notice it. But speaking of Oculus, you're right. Like if this movie had come out in 2013, it would have been the best horror movie of 2013. And it's not necessarily its fault that it's coming four to five years later than The Witch, with which it has uh, such thematic similarity. But what it does differently, it does more interestingly. So I didn't really expect necessarily that this would be set in the present day, at least not initially when you see the poster and you see the women hanging out clothing, at least initially, you know, they're drying sheets and they're drying dresses and they have their, you know, color coded uh, handmaid's tale esque apparel. 
you know, sort of like, okay, perhaps this is some sort of frontier era story, some Laura Ingalls Wilder shit. And then it pans over and you see like a pretty contemporary, like pop-up trailer. And you're like, oh, okay, no, no, this is the present. All right. And I think that its methods of audience disorientation are sufficiently dissimilar from the witch the Vavitch, that it lends itself to being in conversation, but different. With the Vavitch, you know pretty much instantaneously what time period it is. It disorients you through its use of period-accurate language, at least as far as we know. Whereas this disorients you in different ways. And while the Vavitch (laughs) is a very bleak-looking film, it exists in nature, but is not a celebration of nature at all. There are moments in the other lamb that are expressive of the beauty of the nature in which the narrative is taking place. I was honestly stunned the first time the camera creeps up on their church. It's not an actual building. It's just the square of trees that they've wrapped these like white thread strings in like parallel lines um, in this like very simple geometric pattern that like, highlights just how gorgeous the area is around it by contrasting it with something like rigid and geometrical. And there's a few choices like that where they ring so much like visual splendor out of like a nothing budget. It seems like, and I was just really impressed by that. Yeah. It looks amazing. The witch comparisons, I guess they're accurate and I completely agree but while we're on the topic, I, I, we, we must mention the ram and the fact that there is a ram that has prolonged uh, eye contact with our lead, just as Black Phillip does in The Witch. And um, I don't know if you saw this tweet that went around this week, but Robert Eggers, the director of The Vivitch, was giving screenplay advice. And his first piece of screenplay advice is don't include a goat. Goats are impossible to train. Yeah, it kicked the uh, main, the father actor in that film. It like kicked him and ra- and rammed him a few times uh, and like bruised his ribs while they were filming. Ugh. Black Phillip was a dick. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think the wife in the Vavitch was also a character on Game of Thrones. There's another little piece of connective tissue. I think that she was um, Catelyn Stark's mad sister. But we we talked about Huizman and we talked about the lead. But I also really loved the cursed wife as they refer to her she kind of lives in isolation in the menstruation shack Uh, whenever one of the wives or daughters has their time of the month they go visit this woman who's kind of been spurned who like takes care of them for a few days um since she's been semi-banned from the flock it's some real red tent bullshit i like that performance too i kind of wish the movie not not to slag this actress at all i thought she was really good in it but it seemed like the kind of role you would want to offer like someone very recognizable. Like if like Meg Ryan or like Michelle Pfeiffer were in that tent having this like dark brooding character turn, this actor gives that same level of gravitas and is like really good in the role, but it seemed like a featured player spot, you know? Yeah. So Rafi Cassidy and Huizman and this actress, whose name is uh, Denise Goff are the only three people in the film with Wikipedia pages. Um, mm. And it does look like, for the most part, she's played pretty minor roles um, and a lot of stuff on a lot of BBC One TV shows, single episode appearances. <laughs> so you're right. It could have easily been distracting if they had gotten 
more of a name actress for that role. I see that. I don't disagree with you necessarily, but I also don't think that the, the role was wasted on her. I think that she was really great, especially in her rejection of the shepherd's bullshit. Yeah, she kind of plants the seeds of dissatisfaction that like she doesn't try to change the mind of Rafi Cassidy's character, but she just like sort of asks a couple questions that open these like cracks that later crumbles and um, turns into like full on descent and mutiny uh, as the movie like comes to its inevitable conclusion. One of the reasons I thought this would be a good one to watch together is because I think you have like an interest in cults as like thematic territory. You are right. In media. You're absolutely a hundred percent correct. One of the things that I thought about was the endless. I don't know if you remember that one from 2017. Yeah, it was good. I also really love the Chuck Palahniuk novel. I, I mean, it's the only one of his I've read. I know that he's, um, a problematic fave, but the novel Survivor, which is also about a person who escaped from a cult that eventually committed suicide and now lives in the real world. I watched both of the recent Nexium documentaries. I loved that as an element in The Lodge, which is a movie that I guess is going to end up on the top 10 for a lot of people just because of how few movies there were this year. But it actually was <laughs> worthwhile. And I guess part of that comes from the fact that I grew up in a pretty cult-like situation myself. Like, not to disparage my parents or anything, but I've been pretty open in the Great Late Planet Mirth articles that I've written about rapture-based Christian propaganda films that have like a premillennialist dispensational eschatology, that that was what I grew up in. And pretty deeply... It wasn't really like a casual interest for, especially my paternal grandfather, who had, over the course of the 80s, been really fully radicalized into rapture eschatology by like the rise of uh, TBN and televangelism and, you know, televangelism's partnership essentially with the Reagan administration. And so to me, I always find these stories very fascinating because it's, you know, it speaks to me on, on a personal level. And yeah. This doesn't really necessarily qualify as like a woman in crisis movie, although it definitely is, but not necessarily in of the genre in the way that I think about it. But this was a really great recommendation. It was it was very thoughtful of you to think of like something of this as something that would be worth sharing with me because it really is up my alley. I was surprised by how Christian the cult was. I kind of thought it would be so much about worshiping him. And, you know, he kind of is this like blasphemous stand in for Jesus. Like within the cult, he is called the shepherd. He calls the women and his, also his sheep that they eat uh, his flock. So he is, it is like worshiping this one like man on earth as a deity, but it also features a lot of biblical references and like, old hymns that they sing as they're like marching from one new commune spot to another. I was kind of surprised by like how much Christian iconography was sort of mixed in with this movie. I guess like most American cults do feature some form of Christianity, whether it's become so large that you can't rightly call it a cult anymore, which I'm going to use good judgment and not necessarily name any particular denominations right now. But there are certainly those that had their origins in some sort of fracturing of a quote-unquote official Christianity into some sort of weird individual denomination that may or may not have grown 
in size and power. But this one definitely makes sense to me that the language of the flock, which is something that is very Christian, very easily lends itself to abuse. Yeah. And especially abuse in this way. Yeah. I guess it is easier to like acclimate somebody to something this extreme if it seems familiar at first. Yes. And you kind of have to like gradually escalate it. I, I guess I'm just wondering now that we're talking about that, like, does the movie add anything new to that conversation? Like, does it have anything specific to say about misogynistic mind control, like abuse or about just cults in general as a, like a cultural phenomenon? I, I don't know. I'd mostly thought about it as like a beautiful, creepy object and like this one character's experience and not really a comment on any of that stuff. Yeah, I would say not really. It doesn't necessarily bring anything new to the table. I mean, I'm not even really certain that the film has a very complex thesis statement because it's not it's not that kind of movie. It's It's about the visuals. It's about the journey. It's about if it has a thesis statement, it's just waterfalls are better than rapists. It doesn't really have, it's not really saying anything more deep than that, which it doesn't have to, you know? I don't think so either. All too often, even among uh, semi-pro uh, critics like ourselves, it doesn't have anything to say is explicitly a negative criticism. In this case, not necessarily. It doesn't really have a lot to say, but that doesn't matter. It's not. That's not what the point is. Yeah, I mostly saw it as like a character study of this one, like almost like a coming of age story, just in a very specific social circumstance, like in a very extreme one, um, and with a lot of like tinges of like atmospheric horror visual cues. And it is so beautiful to look at that that's enough. Like that atmosphere and that central performance are enough to make it worth looking at. I think where it really, I guess, breaks with. Christian theology, other than, you know, in the sense that it's a it's a sex cult, is that this is a shepherd who is explicitly disinterested in the repair of broken things, which would be heretical within Christianity, which is that from their point of view, their savior has come to repair the broken things. He's come to save souls. He's come to find the lost sheep. He's come to repair the flock. And it is mentioned multiple times in The Other Lamb that this shepherd, you know, after they have begun their migratory exodus, because the police have shown up at their compound and been like, yeah, no, he, they arrive at a house that's been abandoned. And Sela, our lead, is like, it's warm inside here. Why can't we just stay here? And he's like, no, this is a broken place. There's not really any interest in healing, which is arguably the defining attribute of the of Christian theology. So it could be saying something about that, but only in the most tangential briefest of ways. I'd also put the way that he sexually violates people in this movie to be like, uh, what am I trying to say? It's not like as direct as it could be. Like, thankfully this is not a very rape focused film, but the, movie communicates that um, abuse of power in a very like uncomfortable way, mostly by showing him putting his fingers in these women's mouths Ugh, yeah, uh, in a very like porny, like Dom sub kind of way. It's very uncomfortable to look at. There's an element of exhibitionism in the way that he takes one of his wives into, you know, one of the buildings or what have you. 
and he knows that Sela is watching and performs a little bit for her even before it's at a point in the film where as an audience member you expect that there is something fishy about this whole wife daughter situation but you're kind of like god i hope it's not going there and that's the first moment where you kind of get this inkling that oh yeah it probably is yeah he's like both grooming her and you know, manipulating her to see her sisters and her mothers as competition. Um, it's so gross. So, like, even if you're, like, I don't know, frustrated the movie's not saying anything new or novel, like, it is emotionally involving. Like, you do hate this motherfucker's guts and you want to see him torn down. On top of, like, wanting her to, like, snap out of it, like, get out of his spell. Um, yeah. So, I, I find it very satisfying just as a character study in that way. I will say one thing that we haven't noted is that this is an IFC Midnight production (laughs) which you know when my roommate and i we were living together last we would you know sit down to watch a movie and every time we were like oh this looks good and then it would start and it would play that very distinctive ifc midnight hum we would immediately turn it off because we were like yep nope this isn't going to be a real movie this is going to be a direct-to-video production and looking back i don't think that we were wrong in that judgment most of the time but this movie does prove that at least maybe in our current situation, IFC Midnight Productions have something to offer beyond just being direct to streaming, not good enough for a theatrical release fodder. I mean, I, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings with this, but if Gretel and Hansel was good enough for a theatrical release, then so was this. I thought they're, they're actually pretty similar films, honestly. Um, yeah. A lot of experimentation with the camera. I think Gretel and Hansel is a little more fun. I don't think this movie you could call fun, but I, I think they're on a similar wavelength. So yeah, I would have loved to have seen this in the theater with like a nice sound system. Obviously not a great year for something this like uh, immersive in a, as a sensory experience to come out because your couch is the only safe option. Right. But yeah, I, I think it probably would have benefited from a theatrical environment. Yeah. I completely agree. And hopefully the next movie from this director, um, she's Polish, so I'm going to butcher this name. It's Malgorzata Zumowska. Hopefully she gets a bigger budget to play with. This is not her first film, but uh, this is her first English language film with like recognizable actors in it, to, to my eyes as an American anyway. Right. So hopefully you know this will lead to bigger and better things, and the next movie she puts out will be something a little more novel and something like a lot better funded because she did a lot with just a little bit of resources here. And um, I was, I was impressed. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not, I have no idea what the actual budget was, but it's IFC midnight. So not a lot. It (laughs) looks great. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, next week on the show, we're going to return to a movie I saw early this year in theaters. I know at the top of the episode, we talked about how there's no, interesting places left for movies about superpowers to go, but I enjoyed a superhero film this year a lot. It's called Birds of Prey. We're going to talk about Birds of Prey next episode. I think the general topic will be like movies we enjoyed in genres we usually don't appreciate. So I'm not exactly sure what titles we'll be talking about, but that's the angle for the next episode. And although you and I will not be recording at the time that we normally do, because I will be in the woods on sabbatical. On sabbatical. <laughs> on a restorative sabbatical for my where I'll be battling for my very soul and hopefully not encountering any weird cults. I would <laughs> like to go ahead and put forth the recommendation that the next time we record is Doctor Sleep. 
Yes, we will return to the Mike Flanagan conversation uh, before the year is out. I think I think that's a good plan. And it'll be right in time for Christmas. And I do think of The Shining as a Christmas movie. Not in the diehard sense, just in that that's the time of year when I most want to watch it. So uh, Boomer's going to step out for a minute. And before the year's out, um, you'll return and we'll talk about Dr. Sleep. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to have my own Dr. Sleep adventure <laughs> in, the deep, in the deeper well of uh, San Marcos. By the time you hear this, it'll you won't be able to find me, so I don't mind if people know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, uh, we'll talk to y'all soon. Some sooner than others, but yes, we'll talk to you soon. All right, everyone. Have a great uh, solstice, and we'll talk to you at Christmas. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Mare-zy dots and dozy dots and little lambsy divey. A kiddly divey too, wouldn't you? Sing Mare's Eat Oats and Dozy Oats and Little Lamb.